0: Section 16 of Red Rubber The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. Red Rubber The Story of the Rubber Slave Trade on the Congo by Edmond Deney Morel. Section 16. The Beneficiaries, Part 2. We now come to Part C of the Congo Territory, Domaine de la Colonne, whose revenues the absentee landlord has appropriated to his own exclusive manipulation. The world is not even favored with estimates of these revenues. Sown in blood, they are harvested in secret. We owe to Professor Cadier the first and the only disclosures of their amount and the disposal of them. All we knew prior to the appearance of his revelations this year were the names of the three gentlemen appointed by the King to manage them Baron Gauffonnet, already holding a distinguished position, as we have seen, in the Congo enterprise, Baron Rail Snoy, one of the King's aides de camp, and Monsieur Drugmans. Secretary for the Management of the domaine privé or A, revenues. Again, a harmonious family party. With great elaboration by carefully tabulated statistics, by a system of double-check worked out in detail, Professor Cattier has been able to estimate that the net profits procured from this private preserve have amounted in the last decade to a strict minimum of pounds two million eight hundred and fifty-four thousand, or nearly three hundred thousand pounds per annum. In the course of the debate in the Belgian Chamber last March, Monsieur de Denayer, the Premier of whom more anon, and Monsieur de Favreau, the Foreign Minister, upon of whom the Congo autocrat can rely upon any circumstances, endeavoured to dispute Professor Carrier's figures but the attempt broke down hopelessly. Monsieur de Favereau described the estimates as very much exaggerated, but when pressed to give the actual figure, replied amid laughter, I do not know what it is. Monsieur de Chemin de Neuer was not much happier, basing himself upon data purporting to fix the total rubber-producing area of the Congo and deducting therefrom the area of the Domaine de la Couronne, he declared that the king's profits had been nearer 720,000 pounds than 2 million pounds. Asked if he took the responsibility for this figure, Monsieur dismay Denier answered that he was not called upon to establish before the house the revenues of the Domaine de la Couronne, but was merely disposing of Professor Cadier's errors. Unfortunately for the Speaker, he was shown at a subsequent stage in the debate to have himself been guilty of a prodigious error, by including in the rubber-producing area of the Congo, as quoted by him to the House, the area covered by all the waterways of the immense fluvial system of the country, plus the area where rubber is known to exist, where it has not yet been exploited. Hence Professor Cadier's estimates remain unshaken. He might easily have been confounded by the king furnishing the prime minister of Belgium with the real figure, if that figure had been lower than the professor's estimates. That the prime minister was not so furnished is pretty conclusive evidence that the real figure is higher than Professor Cadier's estimates. But this terrible critic of the absentee African landlord did not end there. He succeeded in obtaining some remarkable information as to the disposal of these revenues. He found that they were utilized inter alia in the creation of a press bureau, the subsidizing of journalists, newspapers, and jurists, for the drawing up of doctrinal thesis, whereby the king has sought to invest with legality the appropriation of 800,000 square miles of African territory to himself. The construction of a colonial school at Tuverin, the construction of a triumphant arch in Brussels, the cost of which the Belgian parliament had declined to sanction from the national funds, improvements on a colossal scale of the royal residence at Lycan, last but not least, the purchase of real estate. It was in dealing with the latter item that Professor Cadier was specially instructive, He searched through the register of mortgages for two of the wards or districts of Belgium, that of Brussels and that of Ostend, and he found that the king had purchased, in the name of Domaine de la Caron, as purchaser, real estate to the amount, as entered on the bills of sale, of seven hundred thirty-one thousand five hundred and sixty pounds. Eighteen pages of Professor Cadier's volume. are devoted to a detailed enumeration of the 115 transactions, officially recorded in these two wards alone. Land, houses, gardens, hotels, woods, building grounds, stables, etc. are mentioned in these astonishing purchases, which, as Mr. Harold Spender says, look as if King Leopold aimed at using the proceeds of the Congo for turning Belgium into his private estate i do not know whether belgian legislation includes what might correspond to our statues of mortmain but there would seem to be need of something of the kind the genius of leopold africanus has imagined yet another method of acquiring further sums from his african party for example by means of loans the nominal liabilities of the congo state are considerable they are as follows 1888 Public debt, 150,000,000 francs. 1890 and 1895, debt contracted with Belgium, 31,804,405 francs. 1896, loan, 1,500,000 francs. 1898, loan, with Belgium, 12,500,000 francs. 1901, loan, with Belgium, 50,000,000 francs. 1994, 30 million francs, or a total nominal indebtedness in round figures of 11 million pounds. The 1,500,100 franc bonds of the 1888 loan are redeemable in 99 years by drawings on the lottery system, the guaranteed fund being sufficient to provide for interest and sinking fund. No interest is paid on the issues. According to Monsieur de Smé de 900,000 of these bonds have been issued. According to Professor Cadier, the issue of the first 100,000 bonds was authorized in February 1888, and the subscription list was opened on March 7th of the same year at the price of 83 francs per bond. A further issue of 800,000 bonds was authorized by the decree of November 3, 1902. He adds that this issue was partly converted in 1903. If Monsieur de Smet-Denier's figure is accurate, and his statements, as we have seen, must be received with caution, only 200,000 bonds out of the last authorized issue have been converted. A large number of bonds have been placed in France, and Monsieur Lucien Coquet, in an able treatise, declares that in 1903, The number of bonds negotiable on the French market was 796,875. Should this be true, it means that France holds four-fifths of the total issue up to date, an interesting circumstance deserving of note. King Leopold pays no interest to Belgium on the money borrowed from her in 1890 and 1895. The loans of 1896, 1898, and 1901 bear interest at 4% and the loan of 1904 at 3%. The bonds created under the 1901 loan are reimbursable in 90 years. The bonds issued under the 1904 loan, known as the 3%, Congo, bear interest as from March 1st of that year. A portion of this stock was placed at par, the balance at a discount of no less than 28%. In addition to the nominal liabilities mentioned above, an indirect debt was incurred in 1901, consisting of a guarantee of interest of 4% on a sum of 25 million francs raised by the Grand Lacs Trust. In his recent manifesto, King Leopold expresses his intention of raising a further loan of 100 million francs, 4 million sterling. What has King Leopold actually received from these loans? It's impossible to say with certainty. Professor Cadier, after an elaborate analysis based upon the sums set aside in the annual Congo estimates for interest on loans, reckons the figure at 3,200,000 pounds, exclusive of the 1888 loan. The yield from the 1888 loan, he reckons at 2 million pounds total of 5,200,000 pounds. A long and heated discussion took place in the Belgian chamber over these figures last March. The upshot of it was that an actual yield of a little over 3 million pounds was admitted by M. de denier who gave no proof, as various speakers pointed out, that the larger sum estimated by Professor Cadier did not approximate more closely to the truth. And now let us sum up this astonishing series of facts. King Leopold starts upon his Congo career by declaring that he has taken in hand a philanthropic enterprise. Stanley came over to this country as his mouthpiece, and doubtless quite sincerely at the time, chided his audience for a latent skepticism or lack of sentiment. They could not, he told them, appreciate rightly, because there are no dividends attached to it. This restless, ardent, vivifying, and expansive sentiment, which seeks to extend civilizing influence among the dark places of sad-browed Africa. For several years, the king sinks 40,000 pounds per annum in the Congo, which he is gradually taking steps to turn into his private possession, with everything animal, vegetable, and mineral within it included. He publishes annual statements which profess to be estimates of the total revenues acquired by this philanthropic enterprise, and he invites the world to note that during the last 15 years, notwithstanding his royal liberality, the enterprise shows a loss of 1,085,000 pounds upon examination those estimates are found to have been below the receipts by something like three million pounds so that an alleged loss is converted into a profit of nearly two million pounds nowhere accounted for it transpires moreover that the king is the holder of the shares in rubber companies which he has caused to be formed and floated in brussels and on the congo and which he controls through his creatures and that the stock exchange value of his holdings today is two million pounds. It transpires further that, after concealing the fact for eight years, the king has set aside a portion of the Congo four times the size of England, Scotland, and Wales, for himself exclusively, and that the net revenues he has derived therefore in ten years amount to two million eight hundred and fifty-four thousand pounds. Thus we find that the king's philanthropic enterprise has in the last 15 years produced a net profit of just under £5 million instead of a deficit of £1,085,000 and that the close of these 15 years finds the king in possession of shares in three rubber companies of a total stock exchange value of £2 million apart altogether from the enormous potential value of his holding in the two other Congo companies, the Katanga and its subsidiaries, and the Grand Lax or Aruwimi, Holder of these shares in two cases for eight years, in one case for four years, he has been in a position to reap all the profits from speculation thus afforded, and with the greater facility, since the large proportion of these shares held by him carried with it control of the market. This picture is completed by the revelation that to meet an alleged published deficit of £1,085,000, he has contracted nominal debts to the amount of £11,000,000 from which he has admittedly received £3,000,000. The whole of these vast sums are the proceeds of the rubber slave trade of the Congo raised directly or indirectly from the unspeakable oppression, misery, and partial extermination of the native Central Africa. Crime so awful, scandal of such magnitude, tragedy so immeasurable, the world surely has never seen their like in combination. The question with which this section is headed now answered, and the facts herein tabulated, can only be disproved in one way, viz. by the production of audited balance sheets of the Congo revenues, covering the last fifteen years, and these will not be forthcoming. King Leopold is the main beneficiary of the rubber slave trade. A long way behind him, the chosen few whom choice or temporary necessity have caused to be selected as participants in the royal spoil. As a Belgian writer puts it, the slave trade has been re-established for the benefit of King Leopold and twenty rich families in Belgium. It bodes little what the sovereign of the Congo has done with this ill-gotten wealth. If he had spent it all and all the additional wealth it has enabled him to amass in other fields, in charitable institutions, the crime, the scandal, and the tragedy would remain. True to his role, King Leopold now seeks to pose as the celestially appointed agent to stem the ravages of malaria and sleeping sickness. He has given one thousand pounds to Sir Alfred Jones, his Liverpool consul, and the ocean carrier of his rubber, for the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, an admirable institution of which Sir Alfred Jones is the President, and in his recent manifesto offers to spend £12,000 towards fighting the sleeping sickness. The mere idea of a grant of £12,000 out of as many millions wrung from the Congo natives fills this royal pecksniff with such emotion at his own goodness that he declares, "'If God gives me that satisfaction, victory over sleeping sickness,' I shall be able to present myself before his judgment seat with the credit of having performed one of the finest acts of the century, and a legion of rescued beings will call down upon me his grace. Prodigious, one feels inclined to suggest a special form of prayer for the use of the royal benefactor, somewhat after this wise, O Almighty God from my ill-gotten millions, I devote unto thee the colossal sum of twelve thousand pounds to save thy people in Africa from a disease which my policy towards them, by increasing their impoverishment and misery, by destroying their confidence, by robbing them of their staple food supplies, by plunging them in wretchedness and despair, has largely increased. Stained as my policy is, with crimes innumerable, thou wilt appreciate the extent of this my pecuniary sacrifice at the touch of my royal robe whole tribes have disappeared as though struck down with a mysterious pestilence the progress of my triumphal march through the equatorial forest is marked by the bleached bones of men and women But all good deeds have their painful sides, and what is the evil wrought besides these twelve thousand golden pieces which I offer upon this sacrificial altar, for the salvation of those of my black subjects whose eyelids, unhappily for them, are not yet closed in sleep eternal? It bodes little whether the bulk of this money has been and is being expended on what the king considers the interests of Belgium. We shall see in the next section the peculiar way in which those interests are regarded by him obviously he cannot spend it all on himself or his friends of either sex the improvements at the Lycan palace are to cost when completed one million two hundred thousand pounds the triumphal arch erected in brussels and which the nation did not require cost two hundred thousand pounds plans have recently been submitted to his Majesty for the erection of an enormous statue of himself, mounted on a charger, to be erected in Brussels in nineteen ten at a cost of one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. The investigations into the value of the real estate he has purchased in Belgium have only begun. Professor Cadier has proved purchases totaling seven hundred and thirty one thousand five hundred and sixty pounds. Monsieur Van der Velde was able to inform the Belgian Chamber last March that Professor Cadier's disclosures, by no means exhaust the list, that more real estate has been bought by the Domaine de la Caron, in the provinces of Louvain, Namur, and Luxembourg. The same speaker alleged that other properties had been purchased by the King, in the name of Baron Goffinet, with whom the reader will be familiar. It is, of course, well known that the king owns large properties on the Mediterranean, notably at Cape Ferrat, where a magnificent residence and grounds are occupied by Madame Le Baron Vaughan. The French government declined to recognize the Domaine de la Caron as a valid purchaser, and the property was acquired in the name of the king's medical adviser, Monsieur Der Velde. Estimates the purchase price of the properties at Cape Ferrat and in Brussels, under the name of Baron Gauphiné, at £680,000, and he is exceptionally well-informed. It is, of course, equally well-known that the king has invested large sums in Chinese railways and in Persia, and there are rumors that his agents are conducting negotiations in San Domingo and Bolivia. He is reported to have invested £600,000 in Suez Canal stock, Very large sums have certainly been expended in the campaign of mendacity, organized throughout the world by his press bureau, especially in France, the United States, Italy, and Germany. A great deal of information has come into my hands on this subject, but not in a form which renders publicity always possible or internationally desirable. There is not a well-informed Frenchman on colonial affairs, but knows that the present admittedly deplorable state of affairs in the African territory of France bordering King Leopold's preserve is the outcome primarily of Leopoldian intrigue with a golden lining. The men who in France are struggling against the inoculation of French colonial ideas by the Leopoldian virus. Anatole France, Francis de Prassense, Paul Violet, Gustave Rouenet, Pierre Mia, Felicien Chalai, and others are fighting not only for the fair fame of their country, but as we are fighting here, for the preservation of the native races of Central Africa, for the salvation of the African tropics from the destructive blight of Leopoldian precept and example. That great man, de Braza, seeing with his own eyes the result of imitating Leopoldian methods in the French Congo, whither he had been sent on a mission of investigation by his government, had determined to consecrate the rest of his life to opening the eyes of the French people, and fighting the modern slave trade. Death has robbed us of him, but his memoirs remain. May Madame de Braza be inspired to give them to the world." End of Section 16, recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com.